Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, Through the Valley of Shadows, Living Wills, Intensive Care and Making Medicine Human, out from Oxford University Press, medical researcher and ICU physician Samuel Brown proposes a new way of thinking about life-threatening illness and the end of life. In stories from his clinical experience, Dr. Brown reveals the conflicting feelings that make conversations about the possibility of death so difficult for patients, families, and doctors. These complex emotions are poorly served, he says, by living wills and advanced directives we've come to rely on, making already difficult decisions even more painful and inhumane. Dr. Brown proposes strategies for patients, their families, and medical practitioners so they can better address human needs before, during, and after serious illness. Dr. Samuel Brown is a medical researcher, ICU physician, as I said, historian of religion and culture. He's assistant professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine and medical ethics and humanities at Intermountain Medical Center and University of Utah, and director of the Center for Humanizing Critical Care at Intermountain Medical Center. He was trained at Harvard College and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Brown joins us from the studios of KUER in Salt Lake City. Dr. Brown, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to be with you. We appreciate you taking the time. Very important subject, of course. Um, I'd like to start where you you treat a little bit of your uh, personal history in the introduction to the book. Uh, It might be interesting for people to know why you, along with many others, decide to specialize in critical care. Why did you make that decision? Well, to be honest with you, it goes back to my dreams in college and medical school of being the next Paul Farmer, this very famous man who's solving many infectious diseases with the help of the Gates Foundation in Africa and other developing countries. And I wanted to be a global health researcher. I wanted to do battle with these horrible infectious diseases. And then I got married to my favorite person, and she had a career that was not uh, global. And we tried out in our first year of marriage living on two continents. And uh, that that didn't work for us. I know it works for some people, but it didn't work for us. So I was confronting this end of this early adult dream that I would be the person who solves the problem of malaria or AIDS in the developing world and realized that I was drawn to infections, but I was drawn more than anything to the struggle that we as human beings have for life in the face of these microbes that seem to will our demise. And I realized that if I were to live in the United States, the place where that dream could most become a reality was in doing battle with what we call septic shock. And septic shock is the most severe form of life-threatening infection. And in the United States, septic shock is treated in the intensive care units. So I, I ended up in the intensive care units as a kind of sublimation of a prior dream to be a globe-trotting disease detective. Mm. And even though you didn't uh, reach that dream, I, I think the perception, uh, you know, the perception I have, for example, is critical care physicians. It's heroic work. You're, you know, you're on the front lines um, face, I, I, facing down death. I love my job. I, I love what we do. And it's important to me as I get on the bully pulpit for reform of the intensive care unit that it's clear that I honor, respect, and admire all of the people that I work with who do such great work. And I think part of the reason that it's been hard for us to engage better the human side of serious illness that may take the life of the patient is that it's so dramatic and exciting to be in the front lines of this battle with death. And I think it it helps to contribute to some of the blind spots that we have as clinicians taking care of people in the intensive care unit. Would you uh, would you tell a story about about your your wife's progn- your your wife's diagnosis prognosis you 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 had several years as a doctor on the front lines there and and then it really comes home when your when your wife tells you she has blurry vision you know you you uh, you realize as you get into these fields that that focus on patient oriented outcomes and the more human side of medicine that most of the researchers have. Uh, personal story of a medical crisis, whether it's a child or a spouse or a, or a parent. And I don't mean to suggest that I'm any different than so many other wonderful people, uh, both in my initial blindness and in my capacity to see more clearly after a personal crisis. My, my wife is my favorite person and is an accomplished historian of religion. 
and was running a conference and came home from the conference she was running to say that she was having trouble seeing out of uh, her left eye. And we're in our 40s now. Welcome to middle age. I figure this was just one of those banal problems that start to hit you in your 40s to 80s. I didn't think much more of it, but she called later that day to indicate that she'd been sent from eye doctor to eye doctor in a confused uh, muddle uh, with almost no communication, not sure what was going on, and finally had ended up with a diagnosis of uh, melanoma of the eye, which was lifting the retina off the back of her eye and causing that blurriness. Uh, And uh, we began a journey that uh, resulted in the loss of her eye and a lot of soul-searching. We were fortunate that molecular diagnostics were able to clarify that we were, in fact, in a good group, that some early dismal prognostications from uh, some of the doctors had been misplaced uh, and um, and were not reliable. So uh, in our event, this journey through the Valley of Shadows ended uh, in a happy way that we're looking forward to many decades together and becoming irritating grandparents to the <laughs> children of our children. But I, but I will tell you that that, that confrontation with deep tragedy in the setting of a technically proficient and utterly tone-deaf to human needs medical system was transformative. In the aftermath of that, I became a much more attentive parent and father. I started going to the opera uh, to connect with what is beautiful in the world. I, my wife taught me how to cook, and cooking has become a really important part of my life and experience. And in the aftermath of that, I, uh, I'd, I'd always been interested in history. I'd always been interested in culture, but my main focus had been mathematical models of how the heart responds to the stress of septic shock. But after that, founded the Center for Humanizing Critical Care, added uh, several research projects, and began working to to change to the extent we can the way intensive care is practiced. And one of the main arguments that I make in the book is that we shouldn't be so eternally focused on legal documents and lists of medical procedures and price tags and hospital bills when it comes to serious illness. We should be focusing on how it is we flourish as mortals in the face of our ultimate physical demise. And if if we learn nothing from serious illness uh, and and this possibility that we'll die, then something is really missing. And so I'm not saying that everybody needs to start going to those metropolitan opera broadcasts in the movie theaters and learning how to cook Near Eastern food the way I have. But, but I am suggesting that as we grapple with these questions, we will find open to us a much richer possibility for life than we otherwise, I think, see in our current hectic workaday world where the most important claim we can make about our moral virtue is that we are busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't it? And it, it, that's exacerbated in, in these days, I think, where we have all the devices that can make us even busier. <clears throat> By the way, we got the devices. We're all struggling financially, except for, you know, these mythic 1% that populate Wall Street, where rushing to make sure that our children go to 35 different ballet, soccer, slash dancing cello performances, and and we're left, I think, hollowed out. And and one of the pleas that I have for us as we all confront serious illness and the prospect of our mortality is that we learn to take a deep breath and relish the miracle that is life. Mm. But parenthetically, I just want to you know, acknowledge that I'm an opera buff, so that's I, oh, you know, I applaud you turning to opera. And then the <laughs> oh my god, I've got my 11 year old daughter going with me because it's in the movies, so you get candy and popcorn. Yes, and you have the best seats in the house. It's high definition. It's absolutely gorgeous, and half the time you cry. It's so beautiful. I I love opera. 
Yeah, I wonder. It's a it's a opera can be a cathartic experience. Is that is, you think that's what you were going for when you well turned I, opera? I don't know. Well, I, I mean, at the time Kate lost her eye, uh, I was working the typical eighty-five hour weeks of the academic physician, and my hobby was doing science and writing, and had nothing else. And and um, I, I realized that life is too short not to see something beautiful, and so I tried to figure out what it was that I wanted. And we have a good friend who's an opera singer. And another good friend who's a, whose mother is a, a, an opera singer. And they sort of coaxed me into going. I'd always thought it was hokey and weird um, and just too pretentious. But then I settled into those movie theaters watching the MedHD where you could actually see that the singers were acting, that they had facial expressions. You could see the sets and you could hear this robust music. And I fell in love. You know, I gossip with other ICU clinicians about how how do they deal with the stress of this job, which leads to really high rates of burnout and substance abuse and depression because we're constantly dealing with a specter of death and so many patients, despite our best efforts, do die. And, and so I talked to him, and, and you get a wide array. One, one friend does power yoga and plays squash, another person a glass of wine and a bubble bath, uh, another person has a therapist with debriefs, and I think for me, the way I deal with the stress of the job is I go to the opera with my daughter and I eat popcorn and I watch this absolutely beautiful total art form. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, this is much later in the book, you uh, quote a Latin phrase, uh, which means, in the midst of life, we are in death. Um, I wonder if you talk a bit about that, because it, it goes along with what, we're, what you're just saying there. Absolutely. It. We know it best from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. It's the, it's basically the script for many Protestant funerals. And it's been a part of our general sense of the world as human beings since at least the ninth century. People think it was probably written in the ninth century, if not earlier. And in the last hundred years, we've tended to think that when people in the past said, in the midst of life, we are in death, they were just stating a statistical fact everybody dies, and everybody dies pretty early. Back as recently as the middle of the 19th century, the median life expectancy was 42. You and I are now well past uh, that uh, benchmark historically. It was very unusual to reach adulthood without having a first-degree relative who had died. It was very common to be married multiple times, not because your Twitter feed had caused you to divorce each other, but because one uh, spouse had died and it was remarriage after bereavement. Now that's changed. The demographic transition is what the scholars call it. Now we tend to die much later in life and we tend to die of more chronic diseases. And there's been an assumption that this phrase, in the midst of life we are in death, was just this actuarial uh, declaration that, oh yeah, we all are always dying. But that absolutely misses the point in the way we have of being tone deaf now to the nuances of human experience. What they were saying was that out of the fact of our mortality comes the miracle and the beauty and the exquisiteness of life lived together. And we don't realize, but uh, again, as late as the 19th century, the spelling books, they called them primers, that school children would use to learn the alphabet had multiple meditations on mortality, confrontations with the fact that we will all die. That's that, that's unimaginable now, isn't it? We, we try to protect kids oh, abs- absolutely. From, from idea of death. Yeah. No, we just tell them to choose their own adventure and, and try to keep things just as sterile as they possibly can be, but... But I'm not saying that we should all start uh, dressing in black and, and you know, having, sleeping in coffins or some other kind of strange Gothic uh, experience. I, I'm saying that a gentle awareness periodically of the fact that we're mortal can deeply enrich our lives. You also say you're skeptical of bucket list of adventures as a response to mortality. And you go on to uh, to quote an episode from that great repository of wisdom, The Simpsons television series. <laughs> uh, could you tell us about that episode and what what you were getting at there? 
Well, that's, uh, this is an early Simpsons. Uh, my wife is the one that got me interested in uh, Simpsons to start with another debt I owe her. Uh, there's an episode where it, you'll, you'll recall that Homer Simpson, the patriarch of this famously dysfunctional family, is a glutton, uh, will eat anything, even inedible things, extremely quickly and then look for another bag of potato chips. And someone takes him to a Japanese restaurant where uh, he's offered blowfish, uh, and uh, unbeknownst to him, the the main chef is out sick, and the sub-chef uh, is not fully qualified to prepare the the fish for him at the, to eliminate the fugu toxin that's, that's in a part of the tissue of this fish. And then they apologize, and they say, well, you'll be dead in 24 hours. And he then spends the rest of that day and the night trying to... Uh, wrap up his life and to make amends and to heal and conciliate with his loved ones. And it's really beautiful. And then uh, he wakes up the next morning and realizes he's still alive and falls back to his same, <laughs> his same gluttonous, uh, inadequate ways. And, um, and I'm aware of the notion of the bucket list. And I'm not ardently opposed to the bucket list. I'm just, I'm, I'm skeptical of of aphorisms that lead to greater consumer spending and greater profits for companies. So when I hear about the encounter with mortality, I, I hope that for many of us it can deepen our lives rather than send us straight to a travel agent to blow 10 grand. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's wrong to travel. I'm not trying to be one of these naysayers. I'm just trying to suggest that what matters most about our time in life is our relationships and the quality of our relationships and the ways that we're able to see what is beautiful in life and make it more beautiful. And And I'd hate for the meaning of our lives when we confront mortality to be the question of whether we did a few more extreme sports or flew a few more thousand miles on uh, airplanes. Now, again, if... If a part of what gives life meaning is travel and adrenaline with the people you love, then absolutely go after it. But I'd, but I'd hate for our encounter with mortality to really just reduce to a wish list on a travel agency website. Let's take a break when we come back more with uh, Dr. Uh, Samuel Brown. He's out with a new book from Oxford University Press, Through the Valley of Shadows, Living Wills, Intensive Care, and Making Medicine Human. Um, want to get into uh, some of the premises of the, of the book, um, including this startling quote from the book when we come back. Uh, Dr. Brown says, the majority of patients and families come out of the ICU with post-traumatic stress, anxiety, or depression. They're more shell-shocked than combat veterans, according to an array of recent studies. Dr. Brown is arguing for humanizing uh, critical care. Uh, more following break. I'm Jeremy Hobson. In 1986, Space Shuttle Challenger exploded, killing the entire crew. One thing survived, a soccer ball given to astronaut Ellison Onizuka by his daughters. The truth is, I don't have a scientific or a logical explanation for you. It was something that they found floating in a black duffel bag on the Atlantic Ocean. The soccer ball that could. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Leslie Ferrero, science reporter for Utah Public Radio. I love bringing you stories about nature and science. UPR is a community-based organization. If you are interested in having me cover something else, you should tell me. Send your comments, story ideas, or questions to the station. I'd love to hear them. You can contact us at 1-800-826-1495 or through our website at upr.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using the hashtag IamUPR. Thank you for listening. Ah, parenting. So much good advice. You know, you should never kiss your child, you should never hug your child, you should never put your child on your knee. I'm Stephen Dubner. In the next hour of Freakonomics Radio, we send economists into the cold, cruel world of parenting expertise. Turns out, it's full of people who just don't know the data. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The following is... <clears throat> the following is an Access Utah program that first aired in April 2016. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are talking with Dr. Samuel Brown. 
who's joining us from the studios of KUR in Salt Lake City. He's a medical researcher, ICU physician, and historian of religion and culture. He's assistant professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine and medical ethics and humanities at Intermountain Medical Center and University of Utah and director of Center for Humanizing Critical Care at Intermountain. And he was trained at Harvard College and Harvard Medical School. Uh, his book is uh, latest book is Through the Valley of Shadows: Living Wills, Intensive Care, and Making Medicine Human. That's out from Oxford uh, University uh, Press. So, Dr. Brown, uh, in the previous segment, we talked about uh, your wife's experience, of course, which is your experience as well, uh, uh, and the outcome was was good, and, and, uh, and so we're grateful for that. Um, but but you were able to experience critical care, the ICU, on the, from the perspective of the patient. This is, as I mentioned before the break, this is very startling. You say the majority of patients and families come out of the ICU with post-traumatic stress, anxiety, or depression. They're more shell-shocked than combat veterans, according to a array of recent studies. Yeah, it, it's stunning. And good friends and mentors have been doing this work for about the last 20 years. Before that, nobody really knew. Everybody just assumed you either lived or you died in the ICU. And if you lived, you got back to yourself. No fuss, no muss. And slowly, visionary researchers started to say, we owe an obligation to the people that we have cared for in the ICU to be sure that they're doing okay on the other side. And when they finally started asking the questions, they realized that we had no understanding of what their path was after the intensive care unit. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in the book is not only talk about the importance of our engagement with the fact that we're mortal, but also think about how we support what matters most to people and their families through the whole arc of their illness, the crisis in the intensive care unit when the fight for life is day-to-day and sometimes hour-to-hour through the slow course of rehabilitation and then the recovery back to their lives afterward. And what we found when we started looking should have been obvious to us all along, but this is absolutely typical of human beings, these blind spots that we have. And the reality is that the majority of people have diagnosable PTSD, anxiety, and depression after the experience. And, and go ahead. Oh, uh, and I was going to say those blind spots, that, that includes the, uh, the doctors. Yeah. Right? Yeah. At, Part of what I'm arguing for when I talk about humanizing the intensive care unit is understanding and honoring the humanity of the patients and families, but also understanding and honoring the humanity of the clinicians. And part of knowing that humanity is knowing that we are, so to speak, only human, that we have blind spots, that we have cognitive errors that we make. And so we need to build systems that will help us not make predictable cognitive errors. And one of those is uh, our inability to think through the ways that our interactions as clinicians with patients and families might contribute to post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a, a hopeful but simultaneously chilling study that was done in France about 10 years ago where uh, they took patients that they thought were very likely to die in the next couple of days And they had clinicians, you know, this was a randomized controlled trial, so they were trying to be very scientifically careful to get the correct answer. And basically half of the family members got an attempt to communicate just a little bit better and then an orientation to the process of grief and bereavement. And the other half got just the typical care that they would receive, which was high quality but not attending to the human side. And what they found was that the rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, and what we call complicated bereavement or complicated grief. That's where the normal sadness and sense of loss that comes after a death becomes so severe that it interferes with actually going about your life afterwards. It's either goes on much longer or is much more intense. So the rates of PTSD and complicated grief were substantially lower when a little bit of an attempt to do a human communication and an orientation to bereavement happened. So it's hopeful in the sense that we can make a difference. But what to me became a moral crisis in the aftermath of my wife's illness 
was the fact that I had not been doing that. And that means, by simple logical analysis, that I had been contributing to post-traumatic stress disorder and complicated grief, that in at least some circumstances, I was the reason that a husband who lost his wife couldn't get out of bed. And that represented a moral crisis for me. I, I had never intended to do anything like that. And none of us do. None of us clinicians in the intensive care unit ever want to do something cruel or to cause somebody emotional or psychological harm. But the data suggest that through these blind spots, we do. Now, some of the post-traumatic stress disorder is inevitable. Some of it has to do with a person being so sick that they would have died in the 1980s, now is able to survive, and our bodies did not evolve to live on the other side of this kind of illness. We're in uncharted territory, and it's painful to be kept alive uh, when you're fighting the hourly battle between life and death. So there will always be some of that that's just inherent to the process of being that sick. We need to think about ways to treat it and assist it, maybe psychotherapy, maybe some medications that can help with that for the patients and families. But there's also a certain amount of that psychological distress that's coming from the way we organize the intensive care unit and the way we communicate. And that, I think, is an absolutely urgent issue for reform and for good research and for changes in the way we structure medicine. One of the things you talk about uh, in the book is living wills and advanced directives. And this is, I think, sometimes we think we've we've progressed, we've, we have these documents, and that's going to take care of the problem. And you're, you're saying that that's, that's not the case. I wonder if you'd uh, illustrate this with the story that you tell in your introduction about uh, John, a man not, not that old who came in with, uh, I think, severe bleeding. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do need to say one thing and then the story of John. The people who advocate living wills, who invented them, who've been recommending that we use them, are good, smart people with excellent goals and aspirations. I need that to be clear. I know we have such a tendency now to just be fighting all the time. Even as I disagree about living wills themselves, I need it clear that I honor, respect, and admire the people who are in favor of living wills. So with that, I, it, it was one of those moments. I actually used to just think living wills were fine. Uh, maybe sometimes they worked. They didn't necessarily get in the way. But then as I started to attend much more closely to what people's actual needs were during serious illness, I began to see the damage that they could do. And one of the situations that brought that so clearly to my mind was, John, bleeding ulcers are usually a nuisance. We tend to think of them as some horrifying catastrophe. But for intensive care unit physicians, Bleeding ulcers 95 to 98% of the time are a minor medical thing. Even if you come into the ICU, you'll get a few blood transfusions, and with these fancy endoscopes that they've improved over the last decade, they'll be able to fix the bleeding, no big deal. But 2 to 5% of people have a more difficult course with the bleeding ulcer, but even they tend to do very well, even if they ultimately require surgery like they used to have to do in the old days. John had a regular old bleeding ulcer. It was just a little bit bigger. The, 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 arter, the reason you bleed from an ulcer is that there's a little artery that gets exposed when the ulcer forms on the lining of the stomach, and the stomach acid hitting the wall of that artery causes it to leak. It's almost like somebody's cut that artery a tiny bit with a little bit of acid, and then it bleeds. And so to stop the bleeding, you have to cut off the blood flow into that little artery. We'd done the regular endoscope, and it um, hadn't solved the problem uh, in, entirely because he was starting to bleed again. And he was having quite a bit of bleeding, so much so that he was coughing up blood, and it looked like I would have to take over his breathing for him. And that can be a, a frightening experience for everybody involved, and it's certainly putting in the breathing tube through a, a person's mouth full of blood is one of the more difficult procedures that we do technically. And so I was focused, just laser-sharp focused on the procedure to get that breathing tube into John. 
and uh, had wasn't even aware that his wife was in the room. Uh, and suddenly she called out, "He's not DNR," through tears, and it it threw me for a loop. It never occurred to me for a moment that I wouldn't support John with a very survivable problem, as frightening as it was. And I told her, we'll take good care of John right now. I just need to focus on this procedure. Did it. It went fine. Got him off to surgery. The surgery was able to stop the bleeding. And as I came back into the room after we'd gotten John off to surgery to talk to his wife, I asked her what what she'd meant by that. And it turned out that John had had signed a typical living will, really only trying to say he didn't want to end up in a permanent vegetative state like that poor Miss Terry Schiavo and others before her that we know from television and, and the political carnival that was associated with her, with her dying. Uh, and because of this system that we have, it had gotten translated into uh, don't ever use life support for me under any circumstances. And she was aware of that confusion and was scared that I would let John die because he had signed a living will that in retrospect had been deeply misinterpreted. And I thought, wow, did, I mean, did we really need to cause that psychological distress in John's wife, Kathy, at this moment of crisis, or is there a better way forward? And uh, what one of your chapters is titled Living Wills Don't Make Decisions Human Beings Do. That, that's in brief, I guess, you have a, a document, but it's static, right? And, and things are more dynamic when, when you actually come to the crisis. Well, when, when we got into the Center for Humanizing Critical Care and trying to think through the best way to support people, I read all of the scientific studies that I could find. I read all of the advanced directives that I could find. I did extensive research in it. And I realized that Living wills are static documents that refer to hypothetical futures and that almost never apply in real life. And unfortunately, they have the aura of legal legitimacy as if they're as binding as a title document or or a last will and testament for distributing a person's wealth and assets after they die. And because they have this aura uh, of legal weight, but don't actually apply in the vast majority of circumstances, people tend to fudge a little bit. Again, it's blind spots. It's accidents. Nobody's doing any of this on purpose. It fudges into and morphs into something that it wasn't intended to be in the first place. Two very important studies have asked at the time, how often does the living will or equivalent advance directive represent what the person was trying to say at the time they filled it out? And the answer is maybe half the time, maybe half the time. And you can imagine with the stakes that high, if if the title to your house were maybe half the time authentic, or if your marriage certificate were maybe half the time an accurate description of your spouse, it, we wouldn't keep using those legal documents, certainly not as legal documents. And I think part of what's at stake is it's been so hard to confront the possibility of death and so hard to have honest, tailored conversations about it that we've fallen back on this as um, as something that's at least simple to do. Uh, and, you know, there was a study that was done by a really bright group of researchers in Pennsylvania that were able to demonstrate that about 30% of the answers to a typical Pennsylvania living will were just based on what option was listed first. The researchers had three different mm-hmm. versions of the living will, and they just randomly varied the order of the options. And you know, the, the first option tended to get picked statistically uh, in a way that suggested that about a third of the time people were filling it out as casually as they signed those end-user license agreements to to use a piece of software or to visit a new website. So what, uh, and you propose uh, some, I guess, replacements, some some solutions. What what in brief would you say that uh, a person should should do to prepare for, you know, when, when, it's when, isn't it, when we all walk through the Valley of the Shadow? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, The two things that I, so, oh, the, the one thing, sorry, 
There is a form of advanced directive that's called an advanced directive, even though it's different, that actually is pretty important, uh, at least as a concept, and that's the designation of your proxy. Who's going to speak for you if you're ever unconscious and struggling for your life? And in every state, your legal spouse would automatically be it. So if you feel like you want your legal spouse to speak for you at a time of crisis, you don't need one. But if you don't have a legal spouse that you want to speak for you, then I think it is very much worth specifying in writing who is going to speak for you. And then that's the first step. The second step is take that person out to dinner and a play or the opera or a movie or a something and then say, I'd like to have the conversation with you. And the conversation project, which I talk about in Chapter 7, has some material that can help with that conversation. But you basically say, this is my sense about the trade-offs that I might face when I'm later in my life. And this is my general philosophy. I want to go fighting or I want to go gentle. And just have that connection with them so that they know so that you've had that conversation. And that conversation is worth a thousand times more than any legal document listing the hypothetical instructions to follow. So I think that's the first piece. The second piece is to allow that confrontation with your own mortality to enrich you. And I found that the thing people regret most in life, uh, what people regret most in life uh, when a loved one dies is that there were things they wished they'd said before they went. There's a new study just published that suggests that that being able to say the last and important things to a person is very important to how they process a death. So why not take that awareness of our mortality to say the things that you don't want to leave unsaid now? And after my wife's illness, I started writing not left unsaid letters to my family and close friends and they, it wasn't meant to say, you know, dear John, I'm I'm dying. You're you're a good person. It, it's dear John, I love you, and this is why I love you, and thank you for who you've been in my life, and I'm so sorry if I've done anything that has hurt you, and I forgive you for anything that might have happened before, and they, I, I'm using there this great. Uh, four things that Ira Bayek, a physician, palliative care doctor, and writer uh, proposed. for the, That's how I started out these not left unsaid letters. So there are ways that I can know if, God forbid, my plane crashes, there aren't things that I've left unsaid to the people that matter to me. Those are the two initial parts that you ought to do whatever age you are. And then the third thing is when you finally hit the phase where your health feels like it's starting to fail, I think it's worth having the conversation again. And then it's worth having that conversation with your primary care doctor and saying, I think I'm in the later phases of life. I'm going to ask you every year at our annual visits whether you'd be surprised if I died within the next three to five years. And when we get to the point where you would not be surprised that I had died in the next five years, I need you to tell me that so that we can start making clear-headed plans about the best way to navigate this final phase of my life. And fortunately, Medicare now has provided a way for your doctor to actually be paid for providing that very important service. It used to be that you asking to have that conversation was you asking the doctor to uh, lose money for her clinic. Now, which is hard, you hate to think in those terms, but that's the reality that they're up against. If they want to keep providing care for all their patients, they have to pay enough money to keep the lights on and the clinic open. Medicare has now provided the opportunity for doctors to actually provide this service. But make sure that they do more than just hand you a living will and ask you whether you want to be a vegetable. Make sure that they tell you when they would no longer be surprised if you were to die and then start talking about the specific conditions that you have and how they specifically tend to behave over those next few years so that you can have a sense for when the next phase is coming and when you might reach what I call a clinical crossroads where you could make a clear decision for a gentle death to go gently 
as opposed to go fighting. I'm not saying that you should definitely go gently or definitely go fighting. I'm saying you should figure out who you are as a person and then have an approach that matches you as a person. And for many people, that will be to go fighting. And for other people, it will be to go gentle. Let's take another break. And we'll come back with the last segment with uh, Dr. Samuel Brown. His book is Through the Valley of Shadows, Living Wills, Intensive Care, and Making Medicine Human. It's out from Oxford University Press. Reaching Dr. Brown uh, through the uh, studios of KUER in Salt Lake City. Our thanks to the good folks uh, there. When we come back, I want to expand upon what could be called the good death. Uh, And Dr. Brown says, while writing a book about death culture in American religion before the Civil War, I read hundreds of accounts of the quote-unquote good death, and I began to wonder why good dying was incredibly rare in the hospitals where I practiced medicine. We'll continue that discussion following the break. How many friends do you really have? Even if you count everyone you know or like on Facebook or Instagram, it's probably going to add up to one number. You've only got 150 slots for friends and family generally. The digital world isn't really going to change that. How our networks work? That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Did you know that character could be the most important factor in predicting a happy marriage? For decades, family science researchers believed success in marriage to be the result of outward skills, such as communication. But what if our character traits naturally lead to those skills? Researchers surveyed more than 1,500 married people in Arkansas, Utah, and Vermont. They were asked to evaluate their partner's character and rate their own marital happiness. Those with open-minded, respectful, and modest partners were significantly happier. As we build our character by practicing compassionate and gentle interactions with our loved ones, our relationships can become more healthy and happy. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Catlin Moran is the best-selling British author behind books like How to Be a Woman, which is filled with all sorts of trademark self-deprecating humor. But she's going to fill you in on her latest novel, How to Be Famous, taking you deep into the ancient Britpop era of the 90s. That's coming up on Q from PRI or Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. The following is the final segment of an Access Utah program that first broadcast in April 2016. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with uh, Dr. Samuel Brown. His book is Through the Valley of Shadows, Living Wills, Intensive Care, and Making Medicine Human. Dr. Brown is an ICU physician, medical researcher, historian of religion and culture. He's assistant professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine and medical ethics and humanities at Intermountain Medical Center and University of Utah and director of the Center for Humanizing Critical Care at Intermountain Medical Center. So, Dr. Brown, we just have about seven minutes left in the conversation and I made reference to a previous book where you talked about you were researching the quote-unquote good death. This further quote from the current book uh, the people who do not survive the ICU are not only dead, the medical system has often stolen from them the chance to complete their lives meaningfully, distorting their final days in an explosion of medical technology. We health professionals may have deformed their deaths, in the phrase of medical ethicist Daniel Callahan. When you go back over the broad arc of human history, you realize that for most of humanity, for most of its history, your time as you were in the act of dying was the most important time of your life. Now, historically, they used religious terms and terms that sounded uh, like religion, depending on the culture, to describe what it was that was at stake. This was based in the belief that was extremely common among humans for most of human history, that there was a life after death. Now, whether the life after death was uh, floating on clouds playing a harp or was a difficult, frightening uh, endeavor by which you had to sneak past angry demons 
uh, in the hopes of finding a quieter place. That varied from culture to culture, but they believed that the person who was dying needed to be prepared to go to the next phase. And that preparation was very important because that's what you would spend the rest of eternity doing. And they approached that in a variety of different ways. In some cultures, it was important to be a very powerful warrior, to be valiant in battle, to not show any sign of pain while you were decapitating your foe. That, gratefully, is not uh, the most common image of the good death we have. For us in Western Europe and the United States, and in the areas that have been affected by uh, the Christian churches, it's tended to be understood as a time for making peace with the fact of your death, for encouraging others to see life more fully, to understand what's important in life, mending relationships with others, and also preparing your relationship with God for your imminent encounter with God. And those were called the good death. It was being able to prepare for the next phase. Now, I'm aware that people fight a lot about these, and I'm not trying to enter a fight about religion or not religion or secular. It's increasingly difficult for many people to believe that there is a next step. And I think sometimes the debates about what afterlife might be like or whether there's even an afterlife at all distract us from the importance of a good death even if there is no afterlife at all, because even if there is no physical uh, or spiritual afterlife, it is still the case that we live on in the memories of the people we love and who love us. And we will last at least a generation and a half, if not two or three generations. So how we die, even if there is no afterlife, matters a lot for our social immortality. That's what some scholars call it, our living on in the memory of the people we love and who loved us. We uh, just have about a a minute left. I just want to give people this quote, beautiful quote from uh, near the end of the the book, then have uh, give you 30 seconds for uh, just to wrap up. Uh, You say, we clinicians can consecrate the sadness we feel when a patient dies, despite our best efforts, as part of the offering we make on behalf of those who survive. By understanding my sadness at the death of patients is a kind of sacred offering, I found myself better able to support both those who survive and those who die. Just about a minute left. What would you say finally on this? I, I think what matters most is that we come together as human beings seeing other human beings, that the doctors and nurses and other clinicians on one side and the patients and families on the others be able to work together as a collaborating team that respect and honor each other as human beings, and that there we will find the richness in the face of our own mortality. I'm passionate about this. I think it's the right thing. I think it's also culture change, which is going to be difficult for all of us, and it's important for all of us to take a deep breath and honor and respect each other. We've been talking with Dr. Samuel Brown, his uh, new book out from Oxford University Press, Through the Valley of Shadows, Living Wills, Intensive Care, and Making Medicine Human. He has joined us from the studios of KUER in Salt Lake City. Our thanks to them. Our thanks to Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Thanks, Tom. It was great fun. Uh, Thanks for listening today. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. Many otherwise astute folks use the terms hot chocolate and hot cocoa interchangeably, probably because they are both hot and chocolatey. But these two beverages are not the same thing. Technically speaking, hot cocoa is made by blending cocoa powder with either milk or powdered milk and sugar, while hot chocolate is what many call sipping chocolate, made from chopped bits of actual chocolate melted and blended with milk or cream. While both hot chocolate and hot cocoa contain chocolate as the focus ingredient, the process for making these hot drinks differs. Hot chocolate is intense, decadent, chocolatey more than milky, and thick, something like a thin ganache. True drinking chocolate is more velvety than its powdered cousin. You find it commonly in European countries, sipped from steaming tiny demitasse cups at corner cafes. While typical American fashion is to guzzle our less viscous hot cocoa from jumbo mugs in the parking lot of 7-Eleven, 
It was, in fact, on a winter day in northern Italy when I tried sipping chocolate for the first time. I'd spent the whole day walking in less than comfortable shoes and inadequate and wet socks. It was cold, the kind of damp cold that a Utah kid never gets used to. The freezing air spilled through the fabric of my coat and my fingers ached. I stopped at a small cafe and sat at a table in the corner. The hot chocolate came in a steaming mug. The surface swirled with milk foam. Two crunchy almond biscotti sat on a charmingly mismatched saucer beside it. I sipped, savored, and warmed. I dipped the crunchy twice-baked cookies and consumed each slathered bite with rapture. It filled me, warmed me, and satisfied me from head to toe. So you can see why I've become a bit fixated on replicating the experience. I've found several recipes and finagled them a bit to achieve perfection. For Italian-style hot chocolate, this is what you can do. Use one cup of half and half. If you aren't a coffee drinker, you may not have half and half in your fridge. And you can substitute 2% milk for adequate creaminess, but I would not go any skinnier than that. Use two teaspoons arrowroot. Arrowroot is a thickener like cornstarch, but it makes the drink taste smooth and nutty, as opposed to the slightly gelatinous taste that cornstarch leaves. I found arrowroot in the health food section of the grocery store. Use three strips of orange zest. Chocolate and orange is a classic Italian combination. Just peel off a one-inch strip with a vegetable peeler, keeping it as thin as possible. Two tablespoons sugar and four ounces of bittersweet chocolate. 70% cacao is recommended, but I used what I had in my pantry, which was 60%. Bittersweet chocolate chips. Don't consider using those cheap waxy chips you got on sale at Christmas. Splurge on something with lots of cacao. If you don't like dark chocolate, don't despair. Combined with the other ingredients, the dark bitterness of the intense chocolate mellows to creamy sweetness. To make it, mix a bit of the cold half and half with the arrowroot in a small bowl until it's smooth. Then, in a saucepan over medium heat, warm the milk and orange zest until it's bubbling around the edges. Remove the orange zest and stir in the sugar and arrowroot mixture. Cook for about one minute more, but don't overcook it or the arrowroot will begin to break down. Then remove it from the heat and whisk in the chocolate until it's smooth and drink up. Serve it in little demitasse cups with a biscotti on the side and feel free to stick a pinky in the air as you sip, but mostly be very warm and very happy. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. The trade war between the U.S. and China is in full swing. But even before this, other tariffs were hurting American companies. Along about October, November, December, things started going crazy. (laughs) And then they still are. What we can learn from how previous tariffs played out and what's to come. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane Smith Needham on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Heard on KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.